time for swordplay. Alex, a 19th century vampire slaying kit, complete with a an 1842 New Testament, an ivory wolf holding rosary beads, a crucifix, a small pistol, and of course a silver bladed pocket knife, sold at auction last month for $3,100. Yeah, that auction was making me a little nervous, but it's hard to believe I got such a deal on it. I mean, that's the price I'm willing to pay to protect myself from the threat of these daywalkers. <laughs> that's right. Blah. Blah. Uh, <laughs> this is Swordplate. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we're going to be talking missions in Japan with our good friend, Paul Harrington. That's right. We have Paul Harrington in the studio today, the uh, Flood Studio B, and we are glad to have him on board. He's going to be sharing with us some of his experiences as a missionary in Japan. And uh, it's exciting to have you here, Paul. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So kind of by way of introduction, um, uh, Alex, why don't you kind of share how you came to know Paul? Sure. I met Paul in 2003 when I had become friends with his younger brother, David, and we all worked together uh, for a little while at Outback Steakhouse. And so after befriending David and studying the Bible with him and going to church with him, uh, I decided to be baptized. He baptized me in August of 2003. And ever since then, I grew closer to the Harrington family, and they became like my second family. And so I believe it was uh, around 2007, I think, where, Nick, you came along. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so I was the preaching intern for the Northside Church of Christ uh, from 2007 to 2008, Fresh out of preaching school, and uh, Paul and his wife Stacy, they befriended my wife and me, and we just about lived a lifetime in that one year in Wichita. That's one of the things, like, Kim and I look back and we're like, man, we did so much in that one year, and uh, our growth spiritually uh, was substantial, uh, our exploits, legendary, and, and the memory the memory that stands out for me is our 58 song set on the video game Rock Band. We did that like one night. We ordered pizza and how many it took hours? Like six, six or seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's truly an experience in endurance. But I think uh, you know stuff like that that just like it bonded us together. And now we got the band back together. And so green grass and high tides forever, baby. <laughs> Green grass and hot tots forever. We can just um, keep Alex off of uh, hard difficulty. We'll, we'll make it through. So. <laughs> oh, man. What was that? Uh, like that Judas Priest song on expert drums? It was, that was Slayer, Raining Blood. Oh, was, maybe that was it. It was brutal. Oh, it was hard. Uh, it was hard. Uh, how about this, Paul? Um, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself before we actually get to uh the japan stuff what 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 do you want the audience to know about you yeah thanks nick um so yeah so i'll i'll just kind of give you a little bit of background uh i grew up my father i was a preacher and kind of a mission work in uh, new york city and i think every preacher's kid wants to know is that uh, is that the calling for them as well and so that was 
my foray into that was my time in Japan. Uh, God really brought about an opportunity for Stacy and I, my wife, to go there. Um, and, you know, that's that's what I want to, I think, focus on today is our the two years we spent there in Japan and uh, and the time, I, my personal experiences and observations there. So let's dig into that. Give us a, a basic overview. Why Why did you go to Japan? Um, when did you go to Japan? How long were you there for? Yeah, all that jazz. Excellent. Yeah, so first of all, yeah, I, I want to say thank you guys for having me on the podcast. Um, I love spending time with you guys, and um, I love the Swordplay podcast. It's a great podcast, and um, I can't remember the last time we were all physically together. I'm here physically with Alex today. Um, it wasn't too terribly long ago that you, Nick, and you came to our house in Kansas. Yeah. And so, uh, but all three of us together, I mean, it's a long time ago. So, <laughs> but, ten, over 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, so it's good to be back, um, especially, you know, in this format and sharing this. But um, I want to really emphasize I'm here to share some of my personal inspi- insights about Japan um, and the Japanese people. And, uh, you know, I want to make it clear to your listeners that I don't cl- proclaim to be an expert um, on Japanese culture or its people, so I don't I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that I'm speaking for all that. Um, but I do have quite a bit of day to day experience, and we live in a semi rural uh, Japanese community, um, which is I think pretty typical of most of Japan, unlike a Tokyo experience. Um, and we experienced a lot of the cultures and traditions as we lived with with and uh, through that experience. So um, we actually got there. We went to Japan through the Helpers and Missions program. Um, out of Oklahoma Christian University, and it was a two-year program. And they generally send people who would like to see if they can be missionaries and, and kind of test the waters to missionaries in the field, churches that are already established in foreign countries. And so we were actually in uh, Haruna, Japan, from 2009 to 2011. Um, and our primary goal there was to, we lived in the community there, uh, very close to the church building, and it was a small church of about five people, <laughs> much smaller than my home congregation of about 800 and uh, our goal is to teach the Bible and assist in growing the church there in any way we could yeah so Nick why don't you uh, uh, not Nick Paul <laughs> Paul why don't you tell us a little bit more about Haruna where is Haruna Japan and uh, who was your guide while you were there in Japan why did you go to Haruna yeah so we lived the Haruna is kind of like the outskirts of the larger city of Takasaki, uh, Japan, in the Gunma Prefecture. I always describe it as it's funny. I went from the Kansas of United States of America to the Kansas of Japan. It's very uh, <laughs> it's the only, one of the only landlocked uh, prefectures. So there's no coastline, um, and uh, it's a large farming communities there. A lot of rice is grown there, um, and we uh, we lived in that very small community. Uh, our guide there was actually, we went there to help uh, an amazing man. <clears throat> His name is Shiro Obata. Uh, he he actually preached for the preached the word for 40 years at the largest church of Christ in Tokyo, uh, the Ochanomizu Church. That means the tea water church of Christ. And uh, he then retires. He moves back to his ancestral hometown of Haruna because there is no church there. And he plants a new church at age 73. <laughs> wow. <laughs> by himself in his in his his wife who's two years older than him. So. <laughs> wow. So didn't you live next to a pig farm? <laughs> I didn't think we were going to bring that up. <laughs> it was it was very funny. Um, my brother Obata had, had called me and told me he procured a wonderful newer apartment for us, like almost like a little townhome building. Um, and, and housing, of course, very expensive in Japan, 70% covered in mountains, so only 30 to 40% usable land. 
And uh, I was very excited. It looked very new and modern. And uh, we even had fiber optic internet uh, straight to the house. And this is, you know, 10 years ago. Hmm. And uh, and we get there. And, and between, we were probably a five-minute walk to the church building. Between us and the church building is a pig farm. <laughs> so on days when the wind blew to the east, uh, we were experiencing a wonderful Japanese weather uh, and no smells at our house, but the church building and anyone there suffered, including uh, Brother Obata. And when it blew to the west, the opposite happened. We, we experienced the caustic smells of uh, the pig farm and uh, Obata-san rejoiced. So it was, <laughs> it was quite an experience on that. Now, I kind of didn't realize scale-wise how uh, small or big Japan was. You were saying Japan land-wise is about the size of California. Yeah, very not exactly, but very similar in size to the state of California um, with approximately half the population of the of the United States, so about 120 million last time I checked, maybe more now. Um, and, and it's in, like I said, a, a place where 70% is taken up by unusable but because of mountains. Um, so it's very densely populated in the most of the most of the regions. Wow. So you're there 2009 to 2011, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were there in Japan when they had the the big tsunami. There was an earthquake as well in in 2011. Um, maybe you can share some of your uh, unique experiences. Uh, in regards to those events and, and maybe describe what, what you experienced with those events. Yeah, that was, you know, that was a really tough time for us um, and the Japanese people, of course, even more so than us. Um, we, uh, and it kind of proves also, uh, once again, the amazing person, Brother Obata, is uh, he's really one of my personal inspirations. Um, you know, obviously his commitment to the Lord, you know, he proves the, the fact that you'd never retire as an evangelist and, uh, we we weathered a lot of that together as well, but um, we were we were actually driving together. We were on our way to the airport, uh, Narita Airport uh, near Tokyo, and uh, we were on elevated roadway, kind of hanging hanging by these guide wires. Um, I was driving, um, and all of a sudden, the semi in front of me began to sway back and forth. And I asked Brother Obata, "Is this is that, is, is that, is that normal? What is happening?" And I, I felt like my tires were skipping back and forth, almost like when you're on a road that's been have had lines cut into it and your tires are skipping due to the tread and uh he quickly looked at me and said no this is not normal and pull over so we pulled over and we watched the light pulls around his flex and the, the semis sway back and forth as they drove and everyone was stopping um and we were we had actually a pretty good view of the city because we were on a highway around the outskirts you don't drive through tokyo generally to get to the airport or it would slow you down a lot and uh we start to see just smoke pouring up into the sky from various port- portions of in Tokyo all over the buildings. And uh, I'm, I'm just, you know, I ask a lot of questions being in Japan because everything was new to me. And I said, once again, um, is this normal, Brother Obata? And, <laughs> and, and he goes, this, he very seriously said, no, this is, this is not normal. Um, and it was actually gas lines being broken by the earthquake and then fires uh, developing in Tokyo. So um, we were on our way to pick up... Uh, one of the supervisors of the Helpers and Missions program, uh, Kent Hartman from Oklahoma Christian, the earthquake and tsunami actually hit while he was um, about to land um, in an airplane. He was in an airplane landing there in Tokyo. So uh, we ended up sleeping in the car that night um, at the Narita Airport because we didn't think we didn't know if the roads would actually allow us to get home and then back to the airport. Uh, and we didn't know. They told us the plane never landed, and we didn't know it landed somewhere. We just didn't know where. So that was a 
that was a pretty wild time. I actually slept in the car that night. It was pretty chilly. Um, it was April, I believe, March, April. I have to look at the date. But the um, uh, Hobatasan described it. Um, <laughs> He said, he asked me, he said, this is, is this like a sleepover party? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved uh, Obatistan's spirit and all things. I had to laugh and I said, I guess, I mean, I guess technically, yes, we're having a sleepover party. So, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Ken Hartman ended up landing at a military base. And that's, that's I, wanna, I wouldn't really want to go into that story. It's a long story. Um, but at the time, Stacy, my wife, was actually seven months pregnant with our first son, uh, mm. Titus. And so um, we were in Gunma Prefecture next to Fukushima Prefecture, which is about 150 miles away um, where the, the uh, Fukushima reactors were. And they had been breached by the earthquake. Um, the varying levels of news. In Japan, the news was, was very calming. In America, the news was very dire. And so we watched these two conflicting stories on the Internet. Um, and suddenly realized from the projections, if the reactors did melt down, we would be in a fallout cloud, um, uh, weather-wise. So we uh, we relied once again on brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, we had been invited to stay with uh, two missionaries, uh, the Taylors, uh, Leslie and Sarah. And thank you, Leslie and Sarah, if you ever listen to this. Um, they invited us to live with them. We'd never met them in person, only through Facebook. We both knew we were missionaries in Japan. Uh, and we drove over 400 miles away to the southwest for a while so Stacy could have the baby and we didn't have to worry about the radioactive fallout if something did go bad. So um, we ended up having our baby down there. Um, we were safe the whole time. Uh, the Lord was faithful. And while I was there, I even had the opportunity to travel 14 hours back to the north and do some tsunami relief work in the Ishinomaki area near, near Sendai there. So it was a we did not anticipate any of that when we originally signed up for our two-year stint in Japan. Wow. <laughs> you know, typically you go on these, these short-term works, these two-year works, and yet it just so happens that in the window that you're there, this uh, really the the major event of the 20th century or the 21st century, right? Of, you know, when was the last time something this disastrous happened in Japan? I mean, not since... Uh, World War Two. I mean, this is crazy to, to yeah, just happen true. to be there. So you have this, uh, you know, these experiences, um, and really they're they're pretty amazing. Do you have any other stories though that you'd like to share? Anything that sticks out during your time in Japan? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's so many things that happened. Um, the during the tsunami, um, I think the relief effort I, one comes to mind. There was. Um, we were working with some other Christians of, of all kinds of faiths actually during the relief effort um, and we stayed on this little mountainside uh, resort it actually was a boys camp um, that was empty of course at the time and so a lot of relief workers were staying there delivering supplies, picking up supplies in a nearby city and then delivering them to the disaster zone um, so the, little, the area a little bit inland from the coast it looked like what I'm used to seeing from tornado devastation um, being from my native state of Kansas, you know, buildings destroyed, crumbling, cars flipped and crushed. But then you add on from the tsunami, you had boats on top of building wreckage. Uh, they were upside down in fields, large ships in the middle of a field. And uh, that was that was pretty, it was terrible, but it was normal to what I would think of from a disaster. Um, the stranger thing to me was we went, as you got actually to the coast, right on the coast where cities had been and, and fishing cities, coastal cities, there was... 
the ground was just bare dirt. Um, and mm-hmm. I hadn't, the first time I looked, looked, looked at it, I didn't really even realize what I was looking at. I was there with a young woman who had actually lived in the area, and she had described to me that this was her city. This was her village where she lived. I see village, just a small town, very modern. And we stood in the on the bare ground where her high school had been. Uh, we pointed. She pointed to where her parents had worked in a business. And the crazy thing was there was absolutely nothing. The, the tsunami had come in, and when it, it comes in, it rises very quickly. And as it rolls out, it comes almost like a blender. It takes concrete and cars and debris and, and shreds everything as it rolls back out to sea. And it had actually physically sucked the concrete foundations out of the ground and left bare dirt. Wow. Um, so wow. that to me, um, I don't know, it was pretty disturbing psychologically for me in stages as I realized what I was looking at. And I could only imagine what it was like for her who was looking at what was her home. So it was with those two settings and almost two weeks of bringing water and food to um, enclose. Like I said, it's still pretty cold. Um, to the area we we kind of heard about a place uh they said hey we heard about your relief work we want you to come up and have a hot bath at um the japanese are are very big proponents of cleanliness of course and they love hot spring baths they call the onsen there was one up in the nearby mountains that had been safe and a lot of the surrounding village people had go had gone or townspeople had gone to the onsen to stay and we were invited there to get a hot bath and we were we're like you know this is this is a great this is great we're all covered in you know, debris and dirt. And even though we went back to the camp each night, you kind of, everything you get and have is just dirty. And, uh, especially the Japanese Christians who were with us. I mean, that's, that's a psychological relief to them to have a hot bath, springs bath. So, um, we, we drive up down this, uh, these crazy mountain pathways. We're in a very tiny, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Japanese K truck. It's like a, you'll see them a lot like in uh, rural farms nowadays, but they're, I mean, they barely fit two people. And uh, they're under 600 cc motors. They're just they're they're more like an ATV than an actual pickup truck. But that's what I drove the whole time I was there. And uh, <laughs> I just squeezed in there. Yeah, my my, knee, my knees were touching like the dash the whole time, even <laughs> fully reclined seat. So we drive up there, and uh, there, I'm with I think I believe three other workers. Um, and we had three in my car, and then another one rode with somebody else. And uh, so we get there, and the. Uh, it was owned by this older woman, and she actually uh, she invited us to stay and eat with them. And uh, there's probably 50 people staying at this hot spring. They're eating every meal together communally, and uh, they were all living basically in rationed food at this point. And we had brought them some food actually to increase it, and they invited us to eat with them. Uh, you know that just that that one instance showed to me how gracious and hospitable the Japanese really are. That out of their um, you know, out of their loss and their meager means they had provided for us as well. And it would have been a huge insult to refuse it, even though they really couldn't spare the food. So um, we all tried to eat very sparingly, and we enjoyed that meal with them. So um, after that meal, the you know, the owner invited us to have a bath, and we did. And then uh, she invited the four, me and my three coworkers, into this very tiny office that she ran the hot spring from, and it was crammed in these little folding chairs and she shared some of her very precious tea, another ritual the Japanese treasure. Um, and I was once again overwhelmed with her generosity and, you know, really the lack of ability to repay any of it. And so um, she had thanked us for the work we had done. We had been um, helping dig out some homes from some toxic mud in the, in the uh, basements of the homes or the lower under levels of the home. And uh, one of my coworkers, not 
not that I had, uh, I'd only met there at the relief zone. He had brought a guitar and uh, he started to kind of strum around and the conversation lulled. And my Japanese at that point was probably, um, you know, kindergarten to first grade. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> trying, trying very heartily to keep up with the conversation, but, uh, you know, exhausted mentally from listening to the and translating in my head, exhausted physically. And I asked him if I could just, you know, if I could play, uh, unbeknownst to me, um, he said, sure. And, uh, all of a sudden everyone became quiet in the room and we're all looking at me on the guitar. <laughs> Open mic night at the hot springs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, I'm racking my, I mean, I took one semester of guitar in college. I was planning to, you know, play a few chords, just pass the time. I really only knew one song and I told it, I told my coworker, I was like, I, Hey, I was like, I only know one song. And he said, play it. <laughs> <laughs> So I began to play, and the only song I knew uh, was Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. And, uh, and as I played, um, I began to sing because I just felt like it was, um, I don't know if I was moved by the Spirit or not, but I just felt it was the right thing to do. And I sang the song through, um, and then one of the more fluent speakers explained to the old, older, uh, elderly woman that, that the song what it was about and that it, that everybody hurts everybody cries tears and she she was crying tears that time um and uh the guy leaned over to me and he said my coworker said you should play everywhere we go <laughs> 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 and, and and i was terrified of that thought so um that was the only time i did that and there wasn't really an opportunity but um i get it really showed to me uh, in many ways, once again, uh, we were all, we we're all the same. When we all share the same hurts and joys, um, we all need God. And, and in that time, it was very difficult to talk to people about God. They really didn't want to hear about God. It was almost an offensive thing to think, you know, what? And you know, the question is, well, then why did God do this to us? So it was a very challenging time, both in ministry and in, and personally. But um, yeah, it's interesting. The times in which people need God the most are sometimes because of just what happens. It's the most difficult time to share, yeah. the most difficult time to receive, even though it's the most needed. Just thinking about how proactive we need to be, you know, to prepare people to know the Lord before things like this happen so that they can have that compass in the midst of the storm. Yeah, it reminds me of basically our time now, really, with COVID. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, uh, outside of the tsunami... Uh, you're over in Japan, and and you're you're there as a missionary. What would you say is uh, or was at the time the the general receptivity of the Japanese people to the gospel? So once again, I'll I'll couch it in my experience because I I I did not live for long periods of time in Tokyo and other places that were more urban. Um, so, but um, speaking to my experience, the majority of the Japanese consider themselves non-religious. Um, so they're very secular in many ways. They rely heavily on, on science, which is, is good, but they also consider themselves atheist or agnostic. Um, in recent history, uh, I would also say they're, they continue to be not very receptive, and I, I won't go into the history of the Japanese people as I understand it, but um, I think there's a number of reasons, at least that I saw, and from when I've talked to people who are friendly to myself and, and to, to Christianity, um, but the first one I, I saw was the Japanese culture itself. Um, a, a story a fellow missionary told me um, he had asked one time after studying with a, another Japanese person 
for quite a while, uh, maybe I mean, it was over a year, he had studied with this person very regularly and just kind of had not gotten very much uh, traction, he felt like at all, with, with feedback from uh, the student. And he asked him that um, if, he, if he had a desire, wanted to become a Christian, and the man stated pretty matter-of-factly, he said, well, if I become a Christian, I'll have to stop being Japanese. And my friend's immediate response was, you know, defensive. And he said, this is, that's not true. You know, you can, of course, you can still be Japanese. And um, I, I thought, I kind of, as he told me the story, I thought the same thing. I thought, that's crazy. Um, but really, as he reflected the next few weeks, and he told me more about that, <clears throat> that it's, it's really, it is true in some ways, and it depends on how you define, uh, quote, unquote, being Japanese. So, so much of what is considered Japanese tradition and has for a long time has deep roots in the Shinto in uh, the Buddhist religions. So, uh, for example, there's a holiday. It's called Shichigo-san, means 753. Um, it's kind of a rite of passage holiday. You celebrate a child's birthday milestone, and, and they go. They wear traditional Japanese clothing, sometimes for the first time, maybe a kimono, or the girls wear this padded vest called a hifu. Um, and then you visit a shrine to drive away evil spirits, and you wish and pray for a long life for your child. So... Uh, in modern times, you think, well, maybe this has decreased, but it, it's still the same tradition. They still do this, um, but also they've kind of added professional photography to the event. So it's it's really a time when you get you know cool pictures made of your kid wearing traditional garb. And uh, this is just one of many Japanese traditions that seem pretty innocent on the surface, um, dressing up your child, celebrating health, getting pictures taken. But it becomes pretty difficult for the Japanese Christian um, when the shrine part's introduced. So... Uh, for a young Japanese couple, what happens is they basically have to reject their parents' request to take the grandchildren to the Shinto shrine to feel right about being, you know, the Christian commitment, because um, they're going to be blessed. They don't believe that the child should be blessed by the local mountain spirit, and so this creates a rift in the Japanese family. Uh, the grandparents feel like they're like the parents are no longer honoring the traditions and the culture, and they're being disrespectful. Um, of course, there's there's solutions. Um, I've seen it happen, you know. Christians have taken their, their kid to the local church instead, and they and they pray to God to ask to bless them. And this is, you'd think it would be an elegant solution, but it's still not really met with acceptance a lot of times by um, grandparents. Um, they've, you know, they, it breaks with tradition. Um, and some families, actually will shun a family member if they become a Christian. They're like, well, you, you're, out, you're an outsider now. You're not going to follow our traditions anymore. So, um I live down the street from a 14th generation Buddhist, which is, I mean, if you think about that statement on the surface, like, <laughs> how many 14th generation anything do you guys know, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was very little hope in convincing him to seriously consider anything else besides Buddhism. I mean, that was kind of a, it was a moment, it was like a thing of pride to him. Um, and although it's equally interesting to me, he, every Sunday, he provided fresh cut flowers for the church. Um, because he respected Brother Obata so much and his help in the community. Um, so every every Sunday there's a reminder that a Buddhist priest had provided us flowers for our worship ceremony. I thought that was very ironic. Um, he just had very little to no interest in Christianity at all. Um, so I think, I mean, there's many, there's many different things. The... Um, Work-life balance is another thing. You probably I mean, the Japanese are pretty famous for their work ethic. Um, it's not a true barrier, um, but I've heard many people say the true religion of Japan is work. 
So if someone thinks they must attend church every Sunday, and there's a lot of very conservative, traditional beliefs that have equated Christianity to attendance, unfortunately, um, then if they think they can't go to church every Sunday because of their job, then that means they also can't become a Christian because they won't, they, they're they they're conscientious and they don't want to dishonor that uh, commitment. So they just say, well, I can't become a Christian, um, which is hmm. obviously it illustrates a deeper level of misunderstanding about Christianity and what their teachers taught them. Um, and finally, you know, the Christianity and the idea of sin itself is, is actually so foreign to the Japanese it sometimes takes uh, many years to convey the truth about that concept of having, there's one true God, uh, the need for redemption and things like that. So although in modern times, you know, younger people and these ideas are becoming more widespread, so there's a little bit of a ground uh, being set foundation, uh, it's easy to forget how much foundation we set in the Western culture through you know, the Judeo-Christian history we have. Um, but some of that, it's becoming easier, I think, in Japan, but it, it's still very difficult. So you mentioned several things discussing these barriers uh, that you experienced in Japan and observing the, the receptivity of the gospel to the Japanese people. You mentioned how you have uh, a lot of secularness, like on the surface, a lot of uh, people sort of just as atheists or agnostics, but then you also have on this other level in the culture uh, this tradition of Shinto and Buddhist beliefs and uh, rituals that still go on today where it's not necessarily they believe in the doctrines of those beliefs, uh, those rituals, but they it's still it's a part of them as part of their Japanese identity. And so it almost reminds me there was a movie. Uh, I can't remember what the movie was, um, but it was like one of those World War II like Japanese movies, and they were saying how there's two Japans, right? And there's um, there's Japan that everyone else sees, the world sees, and then there's the real Japan that uh, nobody else gets to see. And so, uh, just kind of reminds me of that idea of just like the Japan the world sees is this modern, up to date, uh, materialistic worldview place. Uh, but then there could be this underlying Japan that you see maybe within their arts and their storytelling and their culture and in their traditions. And so why don't you dig in a little bit more, tell us about some more about Shintoism, about Buddhism, and really describe for us as best you can the Japanese worldview concerning the spirit realm, you know, and even if age makes a difference, you know, this the view of uh, first generation, second generation, third generation, the community. Because you, you did mention grandparents being disappointed and disowning, you know, children or grandchildren who break off into uh, different belief system like Christianity. Why don't you dig into that for? There's like five things I asked you to do, but just dig into that as best you can. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you touched on a lot of I think really good points, um, Alex. The so touching briefly on receptivity. Um, there's the ideas of there's different faces of people in Japan, and I think that's just super briefly. As an outsider in Japan, um, you know, I personally experience what I believe is there's um, they give they have a face they give to the outsider, and so it's really more like a persona that it's hard to break through. And then second, when you become their friend and maybe get through that, they're still you're still a well, I'd say it's like you're maybe not an outsider, but you're still not going to get through a polite face. And to see the real Japanese person, and this isn't you know very different from all of us, but it's very, uh, very pronounced in Japan. So to make some breakthroughs there is is difficult just because of that fact too. But uh, speaking to the Japanese worldview, um, 
so there there are definitely some differences I saw due to age. Uh, you know, Japanese young people love Western culture, and they are they are very friendly to Americans in the West, and so they um, they want to learn about a lot of things. But it's easy for a new missionary to take that desire to to know about Western things as um, receptivity to Christianity, and it's not always. And, and they'll they'll study the Bible with you for weeks and be like, "Oh, that was super cool! Thank you so much!" and then have no interest to pursue <laughs> further, but they just, it's just like filing away the knowledge, you know, for, yeah. they learned about this Western thing. It's like um, an anthropological study to them. Yeah. 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 Or just, uh, Oh, thank you for telling me about your local baseball team, you know? Sure. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, just like in many countries, I think the older, the older members are definitely more conservative from my experience. Um, they're more locked into the traditions of the culture. Um, younger people are less likely to adhere to all the traditions, but, um, that's where I think uh, in my I, I did not understand this very well at all when I became the the group culture of Japan is one of the most powerful influences there um, so there's huge family social pressure to at least appear like you are just like everyone else um, and that, that's in every and even down to religion so um, there's the famous Japanese proverb you may have heard it you know the nail that sticks out gets hammered down um, the idea that you do not want to be like anybody, any you know, stick out at all, or you're or you're going to be, you know, targeted. So, uh, to get back to your question, it was an interesting interesting quote one time. It was described to me that the Japanese live Shinto, and they die Buddhist. So that took a while for me to understand, and I don't think there's easy answers there unless you, you know, each person has a different belief system, of course. But um, the Shinto religion is it's kind of a nature religion, so a lot of people describe it as animism meaning that there's spirits in everything. And that's what Shinto religion believes, that there are these kami, or gods, like gods with a small g, um, that live in everything. So they live in rocks and trees, a lot of in nature, but even in even in modern devices, you either be a little spirit living in your stapler and things. Um, there's no real moral code or even a required list of practices that have to be done with the Shinto religion. There, there are a few things... Um, like in the Japan, the traditions have become like a lot of festivals are based around the Shinto religion, so you could you could count those as requirements, but they're not required. Um, even kind of the underlying belief about spirits living in everything, um, and especially large physical features. Uh, I, I call back to the Studio Ghibli films like Spirited Away. I mean, that's very, very Japanese mythology storytelling. Um, spirits of the river, spirits of the mountain. Um, that influences their storytelling and a lot of their belief system a lot um, and the superstitions they have as well. So, of course, my question, <laughs> I had a good friend, uh, about if she's in her mid-30s, she invited us to go to a Shinto shrine. Um, and my question to her was, I said, you know, if it's okay for me to ask, do you actually believe um, in the Shinto like there is a spirit. It was a it was a it was a mountain shrine, so it would be to the mountain spirit. So, do you really believe that there's a mountain spirit here and it has power? And I mean, is that I mean, and, and is there a worship there? Do you believe that? Uh, and she said basically, um, or her asked if her friends did believe that as well. She said more. It's more like honoring something that might be there. Um, it's and a reverence for nature. Um, and she described it kind of more like we have a superstition or a wish in America. Um, and we kind of, after we're talking back and forth, um, she had lived in America for about a year or two. She described it as being very similar to, we have wishing wells, you know, people mm. flick a coin into a fountain. Yeah. 
And uh, she said it's very similar to that, where it's like you know you don't you're not really counting on the wishing well, but you know you want to cover your bases and make sure. I, I think it's a little deeper there. Then I don't really think many Americans believe in wishing well. <laughs> um, but there are definitely people who believe bad things there do happen to evil spirits. I would say that. Um, and they need to go to the shrine to prevent or ward off the evil spirits. Um, I, there's not a lot of specific provision for the afterlife in the Shinto religion. Um, I'll touch on this a little bit. They do believe that you can, when you die, you become a spirit as well. Like, And that's where the ancestor worship part comes from. Um, but there's no specific belief of heaven or a, a positive afterlife in Shinto. So a lot of uh, people have taken on... No, like purgatory or... Correct, a, yeah. Okay, holding place or anything like that? Yeah, nothing. In, in okay. Shinto, you basically, you can become a spirit like the mountain spirit and inhabit something, and you may become a higher spirit class, more powerful spirit, but there's no... You're basically still on Earth, from my understanding. Um, okay. It's pretty... It was There wasn't a lot of hard and fast rules when it was explained to me, so... Um, <laughs> But um, Buddhism has a lot more, you know, tenets and, and, and you know, ideas about like nirvana, heaven-like state, things like enlightenment. So um, I think that's why they say um, you, you live Shinto and you die Buddhist. Um, a few, the few funerals I went, I attended one and I saw a few. Uh, they were all Buddhist that I saw there, um, except for well, there was a Christian funeral in a church as well, but that was pretty rare because you know because I was a missionary, I got to go to that. So um, the ancestor worship, I thought it was Buddhist, um, which I had to reference a lot <laughs> talking to people because I was very confused. But that's because that's to me is more of a Chinese um, kind of Taoism um, idea, Confucius and ancestor worship. But to them, it goes back to that possibility that their ancestor or their, pe- your, their parents may have died and still be inhabiting the house they live in. And so they're venerating them and, and uh, they, it's less worship, but it, it's a type of honoring um, so the Japanese religions, they are very comfortable with syncretism, meaning, you know, of course, they combine. So they have aspects of Shinto, aspects of, of uh, Buddhism. And uh, I even encountered one guy who was basically like, um, yes, I, you know, I like, I like Jesus Christ, too. I'll be a Christian, too. And he had no problem. He was like, um, you know, I, I attend the Shinto festivals. I go to the Buddhist shrine and I will go to church occasionally and, and pray. And it was just like, sure. Just adding it on to the, yep. More religions, the merrier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so just to be clear, when people do ancestor worship, um, they're thinking of that from a Shinto perspective. From my understanding. Yes. And that's like, uh, you know, things like lighting incense and things like that in Mm -hmm. the house. Yep, where they have a statue, a family shrine near the and somewhere on the land that looks like a little. A lot of times they're very old, so they'll and they kind of represent the whole family. But there'll be a little eroded, like human-like statue, and they'll put clothes on it. You'll see like these little aprons or things, and they'll put food outside of it um, during festival times, things like that. Do they consider that type of veneration a uh, form of worship, or to them is it just a form of like? when we go to a cemetery and we lay down flowers at the grave of a loved one, right? Or we put like, you know, something sentimental or, you know, buried with our loved one, or we uh, have these like celebrate, like celebrating the anniversary of someone's death or, uh, you know, this, how many years we would have been married or something like that. Like we do these things that uh, we don't really attribute to 
uh, a particular like form of worship, but it's just like almost like a form of just coping with uh, life and death. And and so we do that. We understand that from an American's perspective because we go to cemeteries and we put down flowers. Is that how the Japanese people view their, you know, going to the family shrine, lighting the incense for the for the dead family members? Do you know? From my experience, it's um, yes to all of the above. So there, there is obviously this desire to connect, um, but there's also they do believe that there's a potential that their ancestors are living in their home and protecting them, and so they they do that to help encourage that and to have goodwill towards the ancestors. So there is, I mean, and I like think an acknowledgement of a uh, existence and like a, like co beneficial mm-hmm. like things going on. And there's some people I do believe who who do deeply believe that that they're living with all their ancestors. Okay. Um, there are some people I think who just do it for tradition and and to appease their parents, and it's just so very very just like American, you know, youth sure. and youth and parents. So. Oh yeah. Well, I've even heard people in America say that like you know my loved one died, but I still believe they're here with me. Mm-hmm. Like I still believe their spirit is with me, or I still believe they're watching down on me, or that there's still this connection that exists between them and the and the dead one, and that's uh, sometimes filtered through what they also believe in with their religion. But sometimes it's not filtered through that. It could be like a secular person saying that, or it's just they had this deep connection with this person, so now they're acknowledging that that connection still exists for them and their in in that what they believe is real mm-hmm. and so it's it just reminding me of that it's like maybe this isn't so different you know in, in the asian cultures yeah i think i mean i think everyone picks up these things along life and uh, some people always you, know, you always meet people with <clears throat> personal experiences who have um, they believe something very specific from an experience um, that may not completely you know jive with everything else in their in their belief system so i, I think it's pretty standard um there's actually <clears throat> so there's actually an interesting story about a Japanese um, and connecting to spirits. Um, in 2010, uh, there's a in you know, Otsuchi, Japan, a, a Mr. Sasaki. He, so he took an old phone booth. He's a, he was a garden designer, and he he incorporated it into his garden design in his front yard, and he put an old telephone in it, old rotary dial telephone, and it's not connected to anything. And he put it there so he could have basically spiritual conversations or, or conversations with a cousin that he had lost, I believe, and. Um, this is before the earthquake and tsunami, but it actually kind of through word of mouth, it got out that there was this this telephone you could talk to your your ancestors or your dead relatives or, or spiritual phone. Um, he called it the Kaze no Denwa, which is you know, the phone of the wind or the wind phone. And all of a sudden, people begin making these like pilgrimages to it. They still do. They visit it and they write notes down to their loved ones in this notebook, uh, and they and they have these conversations. They recorded some. There's actually a really interesting piece um, on NHK did a documentary on it, beat a little small piece, and then there was even a This American Life segment on it that's pretty interesting, um, where they, they asked and they were able to record some of the conversations people had. And they were, a lot of them, just very, very human conversations, just asking, you know, please come home. Like their father or mother was missing still in the tsunami, and they wanted to come home. And uh, so there's... The, I wrote down a quote actually from a guy. He had, he was giving an interview, Mr. Sasaki, the guy who had put the phone there, and he said, uh, he said, life is only at most a hundred years, but death is something that goes on much longer, both for the person who has died and also for the survivors, who must find a way to feel connected to the dead. Death does not end the life. All the people who are left afterward are still figuring out what to do about it. They need a way to feel connected. Um, and I think 
I think that's a really, I, I read that, I thought, you know, that's a really apt description of both the Japanese and really us as well. Um, as, you know, we're all, you know, someone dies, they leave this void, and people are looking for a connection there. And uh, it's so powerful when you can when you can give people the reality that is Christianity and they can see the comfort. Um, there's, so there's so many hurting people still, they have no hope for the relatives they lost during the tsunami. And so um, I think it's so important you know, to share that. And unfortunately, the receptivity is not always there to hear it. So Sure. And without that explanation, if I had seen like just the headline or something on the surface, like I, it would be easy to look at this and say, wow, is this just like a Ouija board, right? You're using this, this physical uh, intermediate that you created for the purpose of contacting spirits. It's just like, is this should this be considered like sorcery or idolatry or like forbidden contact with mm-hmm. the dead? And it sounds to me that that's not really the way that they're thinking about it. There's no like sacrifice going on. There's no, um, you know, quid pro quo. Like here, I do this for you. You do this for me. There's no like tell me about the future or give me power to overcome my enemies or or give me secret information or anything like that. It's more like um, like a, a coping mechanism to deal with something that they don't have any other tool to deal with right because this is where you're left with with an atheistic agnostic materialistic worldview you don't have a way of dealing with the immaterial or the unseen and so you you come up with these uh ways that that fill the need to to be there to explain uh you know these worldview questions that aren't answered by things that they um all, that they just subscribe to you know you got to answer these like where where do we come from mm. where are we going what is the purpose of this what happens after death these are big worldview questions and so it almost is like this phone booth was a way to to help people be human mm. <laughs> humans created in the image of god who who need to have some sort of closure concerning these things and that's the the natural that god hole that god gap left within people's hearts that has to be filled and and even though they don't want it to be filled with Christianity, <laughs> it's like they're still looking for something to fill it with. Yeah, I think it's. I think you're right about a lot of you know, not all of what you just said, especially the you know, it's almost like I always picture you know the single mom lost a father and she's at the graveside of the husband in America saying you know, don't know how I'm going to make it without you, and t- giving updates on the kids to a tombstone basically. Right. Right. And and yeah, so it's very um, yeah. There's they're definitely. There's so many moments of receptivity, um, and turning those into moments for Christ is is a challenge. Sure. You mentioned uh, evil spirits, mountain spirits, and how for some, for most, I don't know, um, they're kind of like a like a suspicion, right? They might be there. Uh, superstitious, wishing well type thing, and um, and yet for others, they these these evil stuff happens because there are real evil beings, evil spirits out there. Um, we of course know, yeah, of course, spirits are real, and it's more than just a, well, they might be there. It's uh, more than just a, a superstition type thing. There, there are real spiritual mm-hmm. beings. Uh, there's some good, but there are also some bad guys, and mm-hmm. I think we could probably all go around and and talk about how we have felt spiritually oppressed at different times in our lives. But uh, Paul, when you were in Japan, 
did you ever feel spiritually oppressed in any way and and as best you can uh can can you describe what that was like yeah sure uh, that's you know, it's funny the that question you know year before i went to japan i i i honestly i probably wouldn't have given that question a lot of thought because um i don't know <laughs> a good friend of mine described it once as you know a dog doesn't bark at parked cars meaning if you're not doing something for the lord you know, Satan's not really after you. Evil spirits don't really care. You can go about your life and, and uh, you know, mess it up as bad as you want. <laughs> Satan's okay with that. So, <laughs> um, but um, and so I, I, I actually tended to kind of dismiss these things because I had never experienced anything like that. Um, so when I went to the... I did finally experience something like that in Japan. I actually had gone to a Buddhist shrine. Um, and I, I'd been to quite a few different places spiritual in Japan you can't really avoid them if you're going to a cultural site a lot of them have Shinto or Buddhist backgrounds um, it actually made me sad because a lot of souvenirs I wanted to buy in Japan I found out were religious icons or instruments of a religious wor- worship um, and so all these things I wanted to bring home and decorate my home with I, I was like they're basically idol worship <laughs> um, <laughs> so but we went to well, specifically one Buddhist temple, um, and from the moment I stepped on the grounds, um, I mean, it, it sounds wild, but I, I felt an intense heaviness. Um, I describe it like an oppressive weight just the whole time. Uh, I, I spent time there walking around and talking to people. Um, it also had aspects of a lightheadedness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt, I don't know if you've ever, I, I describe it as, you know what? It's like, you know, when you're doing something on the edge of your conscience <laughs> and you're like, you don't feel right about it. And, uh, you're just, your conscience has some, you know, call to you that this is, maybe this is not right. Um, I, I tried to ignore it. I thought it was, maybe I hadn't eaten enough that day. Um, it lasted and persisted until we left that shrine. Um, I prayed in the car. I prayed on the way home. Um, and that was, that has been that was the only time I physically felt anything like that in my experience. Um, right. Has it been similar to anything you guys have had happen? Well, before, before we go into that quick question, those, uh, you know, gate looking like pergola things, those are, they're normally red yeah. and they have, you know, these two poles and then this cross beam, but it's like decorated, um, tori, are those Tori gate? Are those Buddhist or Shinto? So that is a Shinto that in that, Shinto that shows or illustrates that you're entering a spiritual realm of that of that spirit, whatever the, it's set up to be. So it's considered a gateway. Mm-hmm. So you cross through that gateway and you're entering into space that is distinct from the space you came in from. Yeah, from my understanding, correct. Yeah, so and that's very and that's not unfamiliar to to the Bible or to the Judeo Christian worldview. The idea of sacred space hmm. versus uh, unholy space and the the distinction between those realms on Earth when you maybe that you know to me that goes along with what you experience with stepping into this space where all of a sudden you have this heaviness and this spiritual darkness upon you. It almost reminds me of. Um, the, the plague over Exodus where God put a darkness and it said that the darkness could be felt, hmm. that there was some physicality to it. So, yeah, there, there's uh, – I think there's something there. I think that's legitimate and it fits with the, the Christian worldview. 
I don't know, Nick, what do you, have you had any experiences with something like that? Uh, the, typically my experience with this is <laughs> trying to explain it away, right? And, mm-hmm. and kind of as you were talking, Paul, you know, you're, you're going through the mental checklist, right? Trying to figure out, well, maybe I didn't eat enough. Maybe, because I think, you know, we're, we're in churches of Christ. We have, uh, we have inherited a very rationalistic, uh, Lockean type of worldview, uh, and and we have attempted to apply that to uh, Christianity, and so we do try to look for ways of um, explaining it away, looking for a, a rationalistic or or some kind of physical way of explaining it away. But like I said, when as I kind of preface the question, these are real spiritual entities. That is a uh, a real space. Uh, where um, uh, you have these, you have some kind of spiritual activity going on, whether it's outright worship or or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's fascinating for me with your experience there was, it lasted as long as you were on the site, and once mm-hmm. you left that space, um, yeah, that those those symptoms kind of went away. Mm-hmm. And and that that's that's uh, so. Um, uh, I heard Patrick Mead once talk about um, uh, what, thin spaces, thin places, right? And like like there are there are places and spaces that you can go to where um, the the barrier, whatever that is, metaphysically between our physical realm and the spiritual realm, it's just uh, it's, it's thinner. Than the normal, and uh, and it could be uh, uh, that that's that's what you experienced there was a thinness in the space, and and as a result, because you're a child of light, and you walked into a place that is darkness, um, they didn't like it, <laughs> and and so yeah, I think I think that's legitimate. Um, I I'm I'm familiar with other. Uh, uh, stories of uh, one that comes to mind. A good friend of mine. He went to. Uh, uh, he went back home, and uh, his uh, his uh, family is uh, dabbles in in various dark things. And whenever he'd go home, it was just uh, it was just kind of like what you described a, an oppressive heaviness. And um, you know, it, it took him a while to to kind of make it click, but uh, once he did, it was like, oh, that's what's going on every time I go back home. And, and he he also had like other um, extraordinary things that would happen uh, whenever he'd go home, and um, some of it had to do with uh, just just things people would say that were kind of out of the ordinary, out of character, and. Um, uh, Again, these are real. Sp- we can we can do our best to rationalize and explain the stuff away, but I think when we do that, we end up with with kind of a Sadducean worldview, hmm. right? Sadducees they don't believe they didn't believe in angel spirits and the resurrection. Um, well, we believe in the resurrection. Uh, I think we believe in angels, but it's that spirit part that we're like we double clutch, right? And even the angels, right? It's kind of like well, yeah, God has angels, but they don't really. 
you know, they're not really impacting us. And that is <laughs> diametrically opposed to what we read in Scripture where, well, actually, yeah, they, what goes on in the spiritual realm impacts the physical realm. Go back and read Daniel 10, right? Go back and... Anyway, um, I'll get off the soapbox here. <laughs> <laughs> no, good, yeah, it's good, it's good yeah. to hear and good, good to say. I think it's important. Yeah. I had a similar experience to, to what you described, Paul, uh, when I was in India. And I was only in India for a month, mm-hmm. but we traveled quite a bit, saw a lot of different places, went to different shrines, and uh, we went to a place in New Delhi called the Swami Narayan Temple. And it was, uh, I mean, just imagine Indian... Uh, Disney World. I mean, it's it's huge. It's this huge complex, and they even have the boat ride where you go through a building on a boat in this water where, like, you have these exhibits of how India invented everything and how, like, they founded uh, every science and every, like, they're, they founded chess. They founded, like, all these different... They're the creators and birthplace of everything, and, and you go through these robotic, like, animatronic, like, scenes that tell the basically the gospel of swami narayan i mean where he does things like multiply fish and and uh things like that and so i i felt when i was there very similar physical uh description where it felt like there was a weight on top of me Mm -hmm. it felt like the air that i was breathing was very thick and heavy and like it wasn't it wasn't because of the weather um and i felt like um there was something there was something there that was basically pressing its thumb down on me saying you don't belong here like what are you doing like get out <laughs> like i'm not welcome <laughs> basically and uh and it was a similar thing like it was it lasted when i was there and it went away when i left and um you know any any kind of lingerings you know would just drive me into prayer and uh similar you know similar experience and i think even here in america people can if they think about it, you know, there's that place maybe in your neighborhood or in that part of downtown that you frequent where, like, you walk and it's like you, as soon as you step, like your first step into this part of the neighborhood, you're just like, this part is different. Like, this feels a little more dangerous. Like, and nothing's happened to you. Nobody's waved a gun in your face. Like, you didn't see, like, a needle on the ground. It's just like you stepped into this space and you had a gut feeling that, like, I am in a different, like, this is getting more dangerous. I'm in a different place. And I think people, that's a common experience, but we don't have the hook to hang it on, right? And so we don't lock it away in memory and be like, here's when this happens. It's just like, we just filter it out of what we think is important and not important in our daily experience. So we all have these, I think, spiritual experiences, and it can go both ways for, for something good or or bad and I don't know. Is there any kind of experience that you would call uh, supernatural? I mean, of course, we've been talking about supernatural things, but what about anything scary? Anything comforting or encouraging? You know, good or bad? Do you have any anything there from Japan? So, fortunately, I other than that impressive experience, there wasn't much that I recognize as supernatural working against me. Um, in some ways, I think it was because, uh, you know, being two years in a place where you're, even after taking four years of Japanese, your your just language is not that great until you're immersed. And so my threat level was probably pretty low <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to the Japanese, unfortunately, you know, to as far as the Christianity and the, and the evil spirits. But 
Um, the, we did have actually one incident that I look back on, and I, I've always questioned it's it, whether it was a, a a time of spiritual warfare. So we had we actually had a three day gospel meeting. This is the traditional Church of Christ gospel meeting. Um, Brother Obata is very old school, and uh, he had this idea. And we had two uh, people visiting from the U.S. Uh, Good friends of mine, uh, Tim O'Neill and Darren Dops, and we planned a three-day gospel meeting. And uh, we had I made up a flyer, and Stacy worked on it for a long time. And it was we passed out hundreds of these things, and we had pretty good turnout. I mean, I think it was it started the first night. It was maybe fifty or sixty people, and it dwindled, but we still had a good, solid twenty or thirty people each night. Nice. And at the end, I mean, this is a pretty rural community. At the end, um, only one person had any interest in responding. <laughs> so we we were instead of being pessimistic, we were overjoyed. You know, it was like one, you know, this is a pretty good return on investment. You it know? worked. Three days, it one worked. person. <laughs> um and so it was this woman in probably uh I would say her mid fifties, uh very emotional and she just was overjoyed. It was after the after the the gospel meeting, the three nights of talks she stayed and talked with Darren and, and Tim and I, and Obata-san helped translate. And uh, and we had uh, we had all spoken English. Well, the two guys had spoken English, and Obata-san had translated. And I, I actually, Obata-san helped helped me translate mine. I'd spoken Japanese. Um, and so after that, so she we set up a Bible study with her, and uh, and things were just moving right along. Tim and Darren went back to America, and we were like, okay, this is great. This is, I mean. At that point, I think the church was up to eight people, um, and you know we're that's a that's a pretty big percentage increase if you get one person. So that's right, <laughs> over ten percent growth. Um, and so this this person though, um, I won't use her name, but she uh, she suddenly her behavior just became very erratic. So she came to like I think two studies at the building, and then after that, she began to call me at my home, um, and she spoke so quickly. And refused to slow down. Even though I kept telling her, "Please slow down, slow down." I'm having trouble understanding you. I began to just record the conversation um, because I, under- I understood a few words, and they were kind of I was pr- to protect myself. So it was words like oppression and persecution, and and uh, help me and all this. And I was like, I don't, "Is this woman in danger?" You know, and um, you know, do we need to engage the law? And so I um, I took them to Brother Obata and played them back. And I said, "I, I don't want to break her trust, but I feel like you, you know, you're trusted." brother can you please help me tra- you know translate this and he said he sighed and as he he interpreted for me she was um she was saying i, I don't want to study at the church anymore i want to study at your home and uh i want to uh and and i, I got i got i was asking her why sometimes not always understanding what i was asking why about um and she had said brother obata was persecuting her and oppressing her and had uh, had basically attacked her and this is a seventy at this point seventy four year old Japanese man. I've never seen him do anything in his life that wasn't for the good of other people. Probably the kindest man I've ever met in my life. And she's accusing him of like physically retaliating against her. And she would just call me evening after evening with these these they got worse and worse these calls like bad mouthing him and wanting to meet somewhere else or meet in our home. And we had just kind of decided we weren't going to invite her into our home. Um, and so just for our own protection. And finally, I, I just said, um, I'd written down some things to say, and I'd said, you know, I, I'm sorry you're feeling this way. I'd, I'd love to continue to study the Bible with you. I really feel like you are getting a lot out of these studies. Um, 
but we, we need to do them at the building. Even if Brother Abbat is not there, we can continue to study as best as we can, even though he is my primary interpreter. And uh, after I'd kind of drawn the line, she she vanished. She just she ghosted out the church. I never saw her again, never heard about her again. Hmm. And uh, it was like once I had wasn't going to be the fall guy or, or blame him or listen to her, she disappeared. And at the time, I thought it was very strange, and we were very disappointed and disheartened, but... In retrospect, months later, um, I felt like we had been, really had been protected from something terrible. She was very unstable and very, she was out to cause a problem and to hurt, fit to spiritually and uh, reputation-wise hurt Brother Obata. And uh, to this day, that felt more to me like a spiritual attack um, hmm. on the church um, because we had had the gospel meeting. Um, but after that, never heard again from her. So very, very interesting. Wow. Now I don't I don't know if you were planning on uh, talking about this, but uh, there was a person that you studied with uh, who did become a Christian, isn't that right? That's correct. Yeah that that actually um, that actually was going to be <laughs> my my encouraging story. Um, so you know once again through my feeble language skills and through two Bibles, an English Bible and a Japanese Bible, I studied with a young man um, named Ryosuke, and he. Uh, he, at the end of our studies, became a Christian, uh, put Christ on in baptism, and as far as I know, is still attending the church there to this day. So, um, to me, I was in—I uh, was very discouraged at times in Japan. It's a very spiritually dry place for a Christian. Very little encouragement, and you just feel—I would describe—you know—when you're in a when you're in a Christian community in America, it's a you know spirit positive place. You know, you're constantly not only soaking up and refilling from the Word. But also from your peers and encouragement. But um, in Japan, you're very isolated um, in most works, and you're, there's always a spiritual deficit there. So you're constantly pouring yourself out, and unless you're plugged back in to the one true power source, God, in His Word, in a very strong way, you can quickly deplete yourself. Um, and I know many, I've heard the stories of many missionaries who've lost their faith in Japan. Uh, but, but to me, that, that story of Ryosuke was a very encouraging one. Um, through my feeble words and through really almost purely the word of God only um, my Bible and his Bible open next to each other um, he came to faith and became a Christian so to me that uh, once again proves it's not the messenger it is God's word who is out there it will not return void uh, it is out there changing lives and that was a I think that was a really big encouragement to me when I needed it in Japan after feeling questioning really why sometimes why we were there um, when the work was so hard so that's a cool story so let's, uh, I guess, kind of summarize, right? Um, the the war, the battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against these spiritual forces of darkness. And so, uh, Paul, how would, how would you describe spiritual warfare in Japan from, from your perspective and also maybe how the, the native Christians there might describe it? Yeah. So I would say that spiritual warfare in Japan, I would start by saying first it it's a very long term battle. It's it's a, it's a it's a long term war, it's not just a short battle. Um the battle for the Japanese soul is um will take many, many years and, and it takes workers who are committed to stay there long term. Um I I still to this day, you know, regret that it was not the right place for us to be long term. 
Um, and that's maybe a, <laughs> a topic for another podcast, but it's, um, you know, we came back to do continue the work of the, of the Lord in, in America, but it's, it's a, it's a long term, and it takes people committed there for their lives to be there for, with the Japanese. Um, they say the average work is not effective there until year 10. So, um, which is <laughs> 10 years on the field. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> which is a tough, that's a tough start. <laughs> um, but to me, the spiritual warfare would be, it was that way because it was manifested to me as a wall. Um, and I hesitate to speak of the experiences of local Christians. I think that's a very unique experience to be a Japanese Christian. But right. for me, um, this intense solidarity of the culture and the tra- traditions and being not very Christian friendly, there's no physical person against the Christian in Japan, especially for the outsider, but the intense spiritual persecution and cultural persecution. Um, there's massive peer and family pressure to continue as everyone else around you. Um, it's, it's almost like you're being, you're not really a threat. You're just being ignored at the foot of a giant fortress or a stronghold. Um, you know, if I can use that word, I, you know, think of Second Corinthians 10.4. And uh, because of that, you know, it's, our weapons are, are, are spiritual. That's how we're fighting. We're breaking down these strongholds. Um, in my experience, it's only through constant prayer, asking for God to work on its people in a, in a specific area. Uh, can you make any traction in Japan? And... Um, it's kind of like each person's actually part of the wall itself because they're part of that culture. And, you know, we're pulling out one brick at a, of a time of this wall, and it looks like a wall that will never crumble because every brick is, you know, reinforced by millions of others. Um, but, you, but you're still, you're taking that one brick out to spiritual safety. And uh, it takes a long-term commitment to this prayer, to praying, uh, to break this down for God, to do the work there. Um, and it takes a long time of teaching and revealing the unhealthy habits and beliefs. Um, but the Japanese, some of their culture is not healthy to the family, Unfortunately, and I don't. I love the Japanese people. I'm not speaking ill of them as a people, but some of the cultural beliefs are are not health, healthy for young families um, and the work life balance and things like that. And uh, they frown uh, on mental illness, dealing with mental illness in any real way. That's a, more of a shame issue than it is something you deal with. So some of those things, revealing to, to the freedom in Christ, revealing the help in Christ, a life of peeling off. The Japanese beliefs and, and revealing the true beliefs of, of Christianity, a life of joy and fulfillment, um, I think is one of the few solutions there. Um, I've and I've seen it. I've seen it happen recently because um, I think the last word of encouragement I want to I want to leave on this topic was actually recently received to a missionary I help support there because I just believe he's doing such a good work, um, and he's just now seeing some amazing fruit in the kingdom after about fifteen years. Wow, and uh, he had moved a couple times, and he's dealing with a lot of youth in college, and uh, so just as um, the Japanese do everything in a group, the people he's working with now are becoming Christians, almost in a group. Um, and after the first one, it's like that first, you know, part of the wall falling away. Uh, the, they put on Christ in baptism, and almost within the next six months, like one by one, three, four, five, six people came to Christ. Um, and he said that his expectation is that is probably going to be the norm in Japan. You know, just as people will stay out of Christianity group, they will come to Christ in a group. Um, and it, that community and being able to have that Christian group and build each other up uh, is going to be so important for them. So, Wow. Um, what a revelation because yeah, I could see how that would be 
in an American context, context criticized. She's mm-hmm. like, oh, were you just baptized because everybody else was getting baptized? You know, like we almost shun the idea of group faith and we want you to have a strong individual faith. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's the complete opposite in Japan. She's like, no, they're, they're a group of people. And that's, that's how they're going to come to faith is as a group. And mm-hmm. so making that shift in mindset, it's like, kind of blowing me away right now <laughs> that's crazy well, it, it blew me away when he said it. i mean he'd been there i would consider him a better missionary but he was it was new to him and i just heard that this last year and uh yeah it's almost like it's more about it opens up the belief that it's a possibility like before that they didn't believe they really could i mean they say they studied but they didn't really truly believe until they saw someone in their group become a christian all of a sudden it became a reality that oh maybe i actually could really become a christian and it's uh, uh, it's it's humbling to see that new things are still happening, and uh, especially in new in cultural contexts, you know, we're not familiar with. Uh, and I just, you know, I I, co- I commend the commitment of the missionaries in the field. You're yourself, Alex, in the field um, of America, and uh, Nick, you're in the field of California. But just consistently striving for the Lord over long periods of time to harvest that fruit, and uh, what a blessing! I just. You know, there's not a lot of encouraging words coming out of Japan for receptivity, but that, to me, is a huge uh, encouragement for us and the Japanese people. So how could um, anybody listening to this podcast, how could they help to support uh, missions in Japan? Like, uh, do you want to drop this guy's name or contact information? Or <laughs> Yeah, so um, there's, I would say there are, there, are two, there are two people or two groups that if you have a chance... Um, uh, the first of all, the Taylors, who are actually the people who uh, who took us in, they uh, Leslie and Sarah Taylor, they are looking for support still to go back to Japan and to stay there and to do that work long term. And so, um, and I can uh, I can get you the link to their website. Yeah, we'll put that in the show description. Yep. And then uh, Joel um, Joel Osborne is another one that is um, the person I mentioned that with, and he is doing work there in Mito and uh, he's definitely he actually not only is he right does he raise support for himself he raises support for um, other Japanese Christians who are now joining him on his team he's converted and now that are, well, Christ is converted but he are now coming and being missionaries for him giving their life to Christ and working full-time for the Lord and are seeking support um, because the long the long-term belief in Japan is that the Japanese will be the ones to convert the Japanese, sure, not foreign missionaries. Yeah, so that makes sense. But yeah, I would love to. I'll share those links with you uh, for Joel and for Leslie and the Taylors. So sounds good. Any final thoughts from you, Nick? Appreciate you uh, sharing with us today, Paul. Um, the The thing that stood out to me was that uh, the fourteenth generation Buddhist. And, um, you know, do, do, do we know anyone who's 14th generation, anything? It's like, wow. Right. Those roots go deep, right? And, but right. I also thought of First uh, Peter one eighteen, where he talks about people who were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, which is kind of like th- those are hereditary chains. They were, these were probably 14th generation pagans that uh, the gospel was first brought to in Asia Minor. Uh, but uh, it's just like you said, the, the, the power's not in us, it's in the word. Um, and, and in the blood, 
because it's the blood of Christ that ransomed them, not silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ. Um, and so that's encouraging for me is, is um, the gospel is still sufficient. Amen. And uh, it may not be, you know, the entire nation of Japan or the entire nation of America, but there are still people that are looking for something. They're looking for the hope that the gospel message brings. And um, uh, our, our work is before us, and there is still a harvest uh, to be worked. And so, so I appreciate you sharing that and, uh, and encouraging us, too, uh, with, uh, with your experience in Japan. Well, I, I really appreciate you guys having me. I've enjoyed it, and uh, you know, I love hanging out with you guys. And you know, we'll have to we'll have to get together soon uh, before we're before it's over there. Let's get together over here. <laughs> that's right. Before the aliens show up, that's probably best. <laughs> it is twenty twenty. <2020. laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Nick, why don't you tell our audience about the podcast? You can go into uh, Apple Podcast. You can go into the Google Play Music Store and search Swordplay, all one word, Swordplay. You'll find the podcast in those respective places. You can download them to your respective devices, take them with you on the go. Leave a review. That'll help us boost the ratings in uh, in those two places. Also share it on social media if you are inclined to, to help us get the word out about the podcast. You may have a question, oh diligent listener. And if you do, Alex, where can they send that question? Send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments your questions and we appreciate you joining in for us uh, to hear about missions in japan so we'll see you next time on another episode of swordplay swordplay